church, the Bible, God? These hardly seem the ingredients for an intense, passionate love story. Yet, as our study leader Dave Wurtzen directs our attention to the epistle of James, chapter 4, verse 5 and following, we discover that the Lord of creation intensely desires the total devotion of our inner spirit. He covets our love. Let's discover how this takes us to the heart of how to defeat the lust within as Dave continues with The Cure for Immorality. So many times we're worried about the enemy without that we don't realize that the world, the essence of the world, is an, is an attitude of adultery that's within. And it cuts across all political barriers. It cuts across all philosophies. It can penetrate all of our hearts. And so what is James doing? He's saying, listen, the only cure for immorality is going to be to get down on your knees in your heart and fall in love with the ultimate lover. And that means involved falling in love with him emotionally. It says, you adulterers, don't you know that friendship of the world is to become an enemy of God? Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that the spirit, he lives in us? Now, this verse is very difficult in verse 5. I don't believe that the NIV translated it in the main body of the text the way that it should be translated. I'm going to take the footnote. If you look, if you have an NIV down the bottom on the right side, it says, or that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live in us. I think that's the way that this verse should be translate, translated. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that God earnestly yearns for the spirit that he created within us? The reason I take it to be that way that I could give a lot of reasons, but the fundamental reason is this. The word that they translate here, that the spirit that he caused to live in us, envies intensely. A literal translation of that, of that combination of words would be to yearn jealously. Now the word yearn is a word that's used again and again in the New Testament for, for having an unbelievable, compelling desire to be reunited with somebody to be close to somebody. Paul will say to the Thessalonians, my heart yearns for you. He'll say in the book of Philippians, I can hardly wait to be with you. My heart is, is just yearning after you. Some of you that have teenagers, when they fall in love, you see them go through that when there's a separation and they're you know, kind of down the mouth and they're, they're yearning for that time of reunion. I can remember when Mary and I first started going together. I was living in Houghton, New York. She was going to school a thousand miles away in Chicago. And we would write every single day. That's a good way to find out if it's the real thing. Be separated for about six months and just check your writing quotient or your telephone bill. Mary and I had to get married just because of the expenses of Southwestern Bell. I mean, Northwestern Bell at that time or Northeastern Bell. You see, when you're in love with somebody, you yearn for them. Now, this is what the text is saying. God earnestly yearns for the spirit. And the word spirit is another word that stands for your personality, deep, the internal part of your being. And it's the part that, that 
can reach out to God, that can respond to God. And what God is telling us is what it was said in Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. And it goes on in Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 to tell us that God is a jealous God. In a husband and wife relationship, there's a legitimate jealousy. And I've explained this to you before, but it comes into the text here at this point. You see, if you're married to somebody, there needs to be a jealousy, a holy jealousy. And what it means is that you have a love for them that you won't share with anybody else. You should be jealous of the body of your partner. They can't share that body with anybody they want to. It belongs to you. Not in, a, in, a, in an illegitimate sense, not in a controlling, domineering sense in which they're a tyrant. It's not what the Scripture is talking about. But in a very loving, tender, exclusive, secure, dependable sense. And where does all that idea come from? God is yearning for your spirit. You know, I find in my own life, it's so easy for me to go through a number of weeks where I'm speaking intensely and I'm studying the Word of God intensely but I'm not taking time out just to love. You ever find that to be true in your marriage? You get caught up just going through the mechanics, but there's no personal relationship. You know, in a marriage, it's so important before you start a day to just stop and look at your partner in the eye and say, you know, I love you and give them a hug. That's a simplistic thing. You know, we, you know, in our culture, we write books. A friend of mine, real good friend, wrote a book, and he writes in a three-by-five card, hug your wife, and that's great. Best, you know, bless, edify, share, and touch. It's a great principle for marriage, but I think something's really sad, really, really sad in a congregation of evangelical believers when we have to be told, touch but we do because we are going so fast we're out there to make so much things so many things happen we're making so much money we're going so many places we're doing so many things that we have to be taught it's a bestseller when you're told hug your kids today don't forget to hold hands with your wife something's really sick really sick for one thing if you have to write it on a card and you don't do it but if you have to write it on a card, I don't want it. How about you? Because those things are supposed to come from the reality of intimacy. And that's what James is talking to us about. You know, the reality of the matter is, whether we're intimate or not, I want you to know from the depths of my heart, God is intimate. God has a tender heart for you and for me. He really tenderly loves you. His heart beats faster for you. His heart wants to spend time with you. He's running the entire universe, but any time, any place you touch base with him, his ears are wide open to hear when you desire to be close. An incredible thing. That's how infinite and omnipotent he is. And what the Lord is saying to us in the book of James is the reason we're having so much trouble with illegitimate intimacy, with illegitimate lust, is that we've lost legitimate intimacy with the God who's genuinely there.
James is saying that God earnestly, he is yearning for my heart. He's yearning for your heart. When you get up in the morning, God the Father is yearning to be close to you. And it's a lie of Satan if you allow that to escape from you. The first cure against sexual immorality is to realize and to believe in the divine husband's love, verses 4 and 5. God gives more grace. That is why Scripture says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's our pride that keeps us from intimacy. And so we add another word to our idolatry, pride and pleasure being the God that we're bowing before. On the other side, we have a genuine, devoted, believing, trusting intimacy with God. If we're ever going to be cured of our immorality, we need to first of all believe in the divine husband's love for us. Second of all, we need to believe in our divine father's forgiveness. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The phrase he gives grace to the humble means that he gives unmerited forgiveness to those that will come out in the open with him, be honest, be humble, and admit their problems. And that's true of all relationships. It's true of immorality. It's also true of the anger and the hatred that develops in our marriages. When there's conflict in a relationship, you know what so many of you do? It just scares the willies out of me. So many of us are so prideful, we can't say, I'm acting like a jerk. I acted like a real jerk. I was mean. I was vindictive. I'm sorry. I want all of you to practice that. In fact, I want you all to say right now out loud with me. Say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Everybody together. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Let's try it again. It's very difficult. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Okay? It's very simple. But there would be tremendous healing in this church family in marriages and in extended family relationships, if we would humble ourselves and say those words. I'm not talking about saying you're sorry for things that you didn't do wrong. Then it takes humility to be able to discuss misunderstandings. But if you're truly humble, you'll be willing to see another side. You'll be willing to say, oh, I could see how you could take it that way, honey. I can see how it was a misunderstanding. I'm sorry. Right in the eye, will you forgive me? Not that I'm sorry, you know, will you forgive me? You know, your kids do that. And we're not getting healing of relationships. And we never will. Until we humble ourselves, you've got to believe that God the Father will, will forgive you. And this begins in your relationship with God. I believe several times in a day, you need to say, God, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And you know what Jesus says? Some of you say, well, man, I, I ask him. How many of you ever get discouraged because you're always asking to forgive you for the same things? Anybody ever do that? How many of you have now decided, I, I've gone 20 times today about that. God the Father has come to the end of his limit. <laughs> Forget it. I guess I just can't get a handle on that area. How many of you act like that? We all do that. But Jesus Christ objectively says he'll show grace to the humble. You know what Jesus told his disciples? He told his disciples, if somebody comes to you 70 times 7, and they say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? 
He says forgiven. Because he says if you're counting, you're not forgiving. And, I, and that's so simple. You've heard that over and over again. But it's one of Satan's biggest lies. He gets you when you're involved in immorality to feel it's hopeless. God the Father won't forgive me. Now, people won't forgive you very quick. I'm sorry to say that, but it's true. And we need to really work on it. In fact, in the ministry, I found people really get upset with me over grace. You know, somebody comes, and it's very obvious, you know, like if, if someone's being involved in immorality, they get pregnant. It's really obvious what happened. So what do we want to do to them? Let's zap them, right? Get them. Well, if they're living in a hardened, unrebellious sin, they're way out there in the world, and what do we do? We start reaching out to them. We try to pull them back in. We gently love them. We don't go to hit them over the head. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed so that immorality could be forgiven. Secretly, openly, it, it was shed so that it could be forgiven. If they respond to that entreaty, if they're not rebellious, if they ask God to forgive them, then we need to forgive them. It's not going to keep you from sin, and it's not going to keep this church family from sin to hit him over the head with a sledgehammer. And now I'm speaking to you because you'll find out about your heart. I find out about my heart. I feel threatened when there's sexual immorality. I want to zap somebody because I don't want my kids to get involved in it. And I feel that we make this person an example. Maybe we can stomp it out a little bit. It's wrong. That's unforgiving. If someone's hardened and they remain hardened over a long period of time, then we need to treat them like an unbeliever, which means that we no longer say you're a believer. We start sharing the gospel with them again. We don't recognize them as being part of this family of believers because they're acting totally like an unbeliever. But that doesn't mean we treat them unlovingly. Oh, how far we need to come with forgiveness. We need to hold a very strong stand about purity. But we need to have forgiving hearts. And you know, I'm really concerned because I think some of you are just being enslaved to passions. And you think that God won't forgive you. And if you don't hear anything I tell you, I might not forgive you. As a pastor teacher, I get really fed right up to here at times. I'm ready to throw all of you into the tank, myself included. But you know, my Heavenly Father has come to my heart so many times and said, David, my son died for enemies. My son died for people that were cursing at him and yelling vindictive things against him. The fundamental character of my heart is that I sent my son into the world to save sinners and to forgive them. And I don't take a lax view of sin. I've even snuffed out the physical life of people just like that over their sin. But the prevailing desire of my heart is for sinners to come back home, for prodigal sons to come back home, for prodigal daughters to come back home, and you're going to have to learn to let me forgive through you. And most of all, you're going to have to let me teach you that you can forgive yourself. If you become trapped in a sin, you need to begin by asking yourself, do I really believe that my divine husband wants to be intimate with me? Because the answer to that is yes, he does. Second of all, do you really believe your divine husband will forgive you? And the answer to that is, yes, he will. He gives grace to the humble. But thirdly, in verse 6 and 7, it tells us that you need to submit yourself to God. I need to submit myself to God. 
We need to resist the devil and he will flee from us. We need to submit to the divine husband's authority. And let me say that again because we don't like that anymore. Nobody likes authority anymore. We don't want to submit to dad. We don't want to submit to elders. We don't want to submit to husbands. We don't want to submit to our boss at work. Now, I'm not talking about tyrants. I'm talking about legitimate leadership. And it begins with submitting to God. You know what it means to submit to God? It means, Lord, I really think this will make me feel good. Lord, I really want to really buy that. Lord, that, that thing, I mean, I know if I get that thing, I'll feel happy. And yet my Heavenly Father comes back and says, Dave, you don't have the money for that right now. And it's not good for you to go on credit for that thing right now. So I don't want you to buy it. But Lord, just this one time, I know it, it'll, just, it'll make my family happy. It'll make me happy. And boy, just even contemplating getting it just really makes me feel up. Makes me feel just like living again. Lord, no. No, you can't. And you know, my Heavenly Father has tremendous strength. Every one of you dads have gone through what I've just shared with your kids. Come on, Dad. Come on, just... Boy, you know, I really want it. Boy, I just really want it. We're all like that. I used to do that with my dad. You know one of the hardest things? The hardest thing for dad to do is no, no, uh-uh. You know what submission means? The hardest words in the world, yes, dad. For you wise, you know what the hardest thing in the world? You know, what, you know what's wrong you know, with a lot of your relationships? Submission, we yell and scream about submission. Submission is the hardest thing in the world for us. Mary submits to me 99% of the time when I agree with her. <laughs> and that's the way most decisions are. Most decisions in a relationship, 99% of the time, you know, two growing believers in the Lord, they agree about things. You know when it gets tough? When I'm out to lunch. When the decision that I'm making seems stupid and ludicrous. That's when it's tough on the wife. That's when it's really tough. And you know what the scripture calls the wife to do? If the husband's not asking you to, to sin, you know what the scripture asks you to do? A very hard thing. It says, the Heavenly Father comes to you and says, My daughter... Trust me with that jerk. I'm going to lead that idiot somehow, some way, I'm going to get you home. And it's going to be pure grace. But I want you to respect him. I want you to obey him. That's what it means. I want you to obey him. You know what it means to obey him? It means that you never jerk the leadership role from underneath his shoes. And oh, if you ladies only knew how delicate it is. You know, we are rapidly running out of leaders in our society. And I am a church leader. And I want to share with you, it's a tiring, tiring role. You know what my desires are? I just want to get away. I want to go to the mountains. I want to write. And I want to get away from having to make any decisions. Anybody that are leaders ever feel like that? Whether you're in school 
whether you're in school leadership or business leadership or family leadership, leadership is the pits. And we live in a society that gives no respect to leaders. We delight in proving how stupid and wrong our leaders are. Now, I'm not saying that we should tolerate tyrants at all. I believe strongly in dealing with those that are acting against the law in a tyrannical way. But I am totally against the disrespect that we have in our homes and in our nation, in the business world, in church life for leadership because it's ultimately a disrespect and a lack of submission for our Heavenly Father. We talk about being a Bible church, but you know when you find out whether or not we're really a Bible church? It's when the Bible cuts right across what we feel like and we follow what our Heavenly Father said, this is the way it should be. We've got to submit to our Father. We need to resist the divine husband's enemy. We need to resist Satan. And Satan is working and conniving to get us involved in all of these areas, to get us to be to doubt the Father's love, to doubt his forgiveness, to get us to reject his authority. Satan is working through all these avenues, but I want you to see something. It says if you resist him, and if I resist him, he's going to flee from us. But Satan is working overtime to get us to fall prey to his devices. And he tells us if we resist him this morning, he'll flee from us. If we resist him this week in our lives, he'll flee from us. Number eight, we need to return to intimacy. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And that's been an underlying theme. I've spoken to you again and again and again. There's one basic thing that I want to get across as we close. In verses 89, there's some verses I want you to get a hold of. It says to confess personal offenses against the divine Lord. It says this in verse 8, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. That's a picture of the Old Testament priest cleansing his hands in the Old Testament, before he would go into the presence of the Lord. And it's talking about the need for us in our personal lives to do that spiritually within, to cleanse our hands. And we need to purify our hearts, you double-minded. We can't be double-minded on whether or not we're going to be devoted to God or whether or not we're going to be devoted to the world. And then it says this, words that we don't hear much of, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, I don't think we do nearly enough crying. Now, I want to illustrate the kind of grieving and mourning that James is talking about. And let me use this, an illustration that would really drive it home. Let's suppose that Mary went out and was, had an illegitimate lover. Now, I pray that she'll never do that, but let's suppose that she did. By God's grace, I pray that she won't, but I want you for the sake of illustration to think about that. How am I going to feel? It's no big deal. I can just go ahead and preach. No problem. We'll just have a few prayers together. Maybe something will work out. You think that's how I would feel? Some of you husbands have gone through that. So you know what it feels like. I feel like I, I could know what it felt like because I've, I've been right in that situation of both the husband and wife's side again and again and again. So I think I can describe how I would feel. I would feel angry. 
I would feel incredibly alone and I would cry. I would really, really cry. I wouldn't get sleep for several nights. I would feel like my whole world had ended, my whole world had crashed. Now let's suppose that Mary comes bopping in after this, this time outside. She comes bopping in and says, Huh, here I am. What would you like for supper? Let's just go to McDonald's. I'll pay the bill. And then we go right on as if it never happened, right? Hi, I'm back. That's where we are in our modern world. That's basically where we are in our modern world. You know what James is talking about? He says, sinners, adulteresses, you need to learn how to cry. You need to learn how to grieve. We've forgotten how to cry. When we sin, we've forgotten how to cry. And the reason we've forgotten to cry is because we've lost intimacy. It's all a game. There's no, we're, we're without natural affection. I'm not saying there can't be healing. I'm not saying there can't be forgiveness. But in a, in a marriage relationship like that, what I need is for my, my wife to come in and to cry and say, Dave, I know that I hurt you. And I know that I, I did something that I can never put totally back together again humanly. And I took one of the most precious things of our lives together and I trashed it. And I don't know how you could ever let me back. And as she hung her head and she began to cry and her shoulders began to convulse and she collapsed on the couch, then, then, not that forgiveness flows from that, but at least we're dealing with true emotion then and reality. And then there can be a beautiful story and a beautiful scene when a husband gets down on his knees with his wife and he hugs her and he says, Welcome home. And you're different and you've come out of that terrible dream. That's what God is saying to us. He's saying to us as people, if you've moved away, you've fallen out of intimacy with him, he loves you so much he'll never deal with you mechanically. But what real forgiveness and confession of sin, what confession of sins is, is coming to God as a person. It's not some little ritual you go through. It's not some set formula you go through. It's coming back to God as a person. And figuratively, I might say, you look at Jesus in the eye and you say, Jesus, I'm sorry. From my personality to your personality, I was wrong. And I want you to forgive me. I want to be back close to you again. How do you know the prodigal son was repentant? Because the prodigal son came back home and he hung his head and he said, Father, just call me your slave. And I know you're a good father. I know you're a good master because you'll feed, you'll feed even your slaves. But don't call me your son anymore. That's how you know that the son was really confessing. He come to the end of himself. The pride was gone. The humility was back. And he started to deal with his father with integrity again. And he says, oh, daddy, just feed me. I know you're good. But you know, when you come back, your father doesn't even wait for your words. He doesn't even wait for your emotions. Because his heart is running to meet you. 
When Jesus told that story, he pictured a father that waited every single day and he ran to meet his precious boy when he came back home. The seventh principle is once you've been forgiven, you've got to believe that God puts Humpty Dumpty back together again. Maybe you have been involved in immorality. Maybe you've been involved in a party spirit and a factious spirit. The Lord Jesus is coming to you today and he's saying, I can forgive you. I still want to be close to you. And he wants you to personally respond to him and to do it honestly, to do it humbly. Most of all, to do it personally. Not all of you will cry. But he's talking about a, a genuine brokenness of spirit that real intimacy flows from. I don't know where you are in your life today as a believer. I don't know whether you've gotten involved in immorality. I don't know whether you've gotten involved in pride. I just know that James is coming to us and saying the only way we're going to be cured from bowing down before the idol of pleasure is to bow down personally before the living, risen Son of God.